It is a joy to be bringing the word tonight. Appreciate everybody for coming out. <clears throat> tonight, you can turn in your Bible with me to Psalm 51. We'll be talking about repentance and sin and why that matters for you as a Christian. And so, for those of you who don't know, uh, before I came back to Alabama, I was spent two years in Jonesboro, Arkansas, working as a journalist at a daily newspaper called the Jonesboro Sun. And while I was in Jonesboro, I covered elections and city business, among other things. And back in 20, I believe 2017, there was a candidate for a local county office in one of the counties I covered who found himself in a bit of trouble. This guy had decked his car out in all sorts of slogans and flags and everything that said, vote for me. I won't, for his sake, give his name. But one day, I walked into the office. I was told by my boss, Neil, you need to get up to Randolph County. A candidate for county treasurer is in trouble. So well, what happened? Turns out that this man had taken said car with its election decals and memorabilia and blocked a handicap ramp leading to the city's pharmacy. It doesn't take a smart person to know that blocking a ramp to a, hand, a handicap ramp to a pharmacy is going to land you in hot water, whether you are a Republican, Democrat, Green Party, or Blue Party. That's kind of a no-no. This man had drawn the ire of the town folk on social media, as you are prone to do here in the 21st century. And so I called him, and I said, Mr. So-and-so, this is Neil Embry with the Jonesboro Sun, and I need to let you know that we are running a story on you blocking a handicapped ramp and keeping old folks from getting their medicine. He didn't answer the first time, so I left a message and waited for what I assumed would be a very angry response. So far on social media, he had argued with people trying to defend his actions, and I assumed that he would do the same to me. An hour or so went by, and I got a call back, and he said, Neil, this is so-and-so. I said, hey, how you doing? He said, Neil, I messed up. I did something stupid, and I was wrong, and I'm sorry. And it, it caught me off guard because we are so prone to believe that politicians don't do that. And the reason we believe that is because they don't do that. It was odd. It was so different for anybody, much less a politician, even at the local level, to come out and say, I was wrong. I messed up, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry to my constituents. I'm sorry to the voters. And it struck me as I was preparing tonight that we live in a world where that seems odd. It seems odd for people to take responsibility for their actions because our human nature is to defend our actions, is it not? You might not be running for office. I really hope that you don't block handicap ramps at the pharmacy. If you do, stop it. <laughs> but you do things that you ought not defend, but you try to defend them anyway. I do too. But the Bible tells us that we are sinners. The Bible makes it clear that there comes a time where we have to fess up just like this candidate did and say, I was wrong and I'm sorry. Read Psalm 51 here with me. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. 
According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is a psalm that you're likely familiar with. It's one of the more famous psalms that we have in the Bible. And you might know the context, but if you don't, this is a psalm of David. He's written this after he's been confronted by Nathan the prophet, who has rebuked David for his affair with Bathsheba, which has resulted not only in adultery for the king, but also in murder. After he sleeps with Bathsheba, she becomes pregnant. David says, send Uriah to the front lines in a war, and Uriah is then killed. David is guilty of adultery. He's guilty of murder. He has committed some of the most serious sins and crimes that we can imagine. And David is finally, by the grace of God and by, through Nathan the prophet, able to kind of come to this understanding of, of what his sin is and why it's so important to deal with it. And so first, David recognizes his sin as sin. I don't know how much TV you watch or how many newspapers you read, but you won't hear or read the word sin much anymore. We often view sin as not a big deal if we view it as existing at all. Some people laugh at the very idea of sin. One of the more famous phrases that you might hear people say is, well, only God can judge me. We know as people of the book that, yes, he can, and that's probably not good that the judgment of God is a serious thing and we're not going to stand up against it, but our world views it as, well, only God can judge me and presumably that's going to be a good judgment because we do not view ourselves as having sin. We don't think there's anything wrong with us and if there is, it's probably somebody else's fault. Now, bad things can happen to you. I'm not minimizing trauma and mistreatment by others, but we are responsible for our own sin. And if God truly is God, if God is the creator of the universe, then what he says about us and our relationship with him matters more than anything. Nothing else matters. Nothing else comes close to mattering 
because it is He who made us and we are His. In order to help us understand how complete his sin is, David does something here in this text. It's a progressive understanding of sin. He uses three words. The first word he uses there in verse 1 is transgressions. There's this progression from bad to worse. David admits that he has transgressed against God's law. Transgression is defined as a willful violation of covenant trust. In other words, you can think of it this way when you tell your child to get off somewhere, to get, to get down off the couch, quit jumping on the couch, take your hand away from the stove, to do any number of things that you may ask your child to do. Your child looks back at you, as mine does, and says, no. No. And we react. How do we react? discipline I hope with that's not okay you don't tell mommy and daddy no but what do we do when it comes to God we say no and we expect that nothing is really going to happen it's not that big of a deal right David understands no I have violated your ways I have violated your rules I'm in a covenant relationship with you God where you have entrusted me to act a certain way to behave a certain way to uphold my end of this covenant and I have not done it I have broken your trust. I have broken your faith. And David understands that in doing so, he has broken God's heart. Next, he uses the word iniquity. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Iniquity is speaking to this idea of guilt, of punishment. David is not hiding from the fact that he deserves punishment. He is not a prisoner being let off to jail who says, I don't deserve this. Have he, he's saying, no, I do deserve this. I have incurred the wrath of God, I have incurred punishment. I deserve this, God. He says, you delight, skipping down to verse 6, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. In other words, David says, God, I have no excuse. You have taught me wisdom, you have taught me right from wrong, and I have just not done it. You are correct in your judgments. You are justified in your words. You are blameless in your judgment. We understand not only have we sinned against God, but that we have rightly incurred wrath and punishment from God. And then lastly, the word sin itself. Sin is usually defined as missing the mark. I don't know about you, but when I hear missing the mark, I think my mind goes most likely to athletics and to sports and to someone shooting a basketball and it, it misses the goal. Somebody kicks a field goal and they blow it and they lose the game because it went wide left or wide right. That doesn't really strike us maybe as all that important because a football game at the end of the day isn't very important. But David understands that he has missed the mark of God's standard. He has missed the mark of his creator's standard. His creator created him with the purpose of obeying him and enjoying him and glorifying him. And he has failed completely. He has failed completely. David does not bring any sacrifices here. We'll talk more about that later in the psalm. But you notice that David is, is just praying to God. He doesn't bring an animal. He doesn't go to the temple. David is just throwing himself on the mercy of God. He knows that that is all he has. Under Levitical law, what David has done is worthy of death. There was no sin offering that could cover death or could cover murder and adultery. The punishment was death. What David understands and what we have to understand about our sin is that it is deserving of death and that somebody has to die. And what David is doing and crying out to God in this passage, 
is pleading with God for it to not be him. Your sin and my sin, like David's, it grieves God and it merits death. He recognizes who his sin is against. You're in verse 4. He says, against you, you only have I sinned. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, sometimes it's a little confusing. Sure, David sinned against God, but David has sinned against Uriah. He, he killed him. He sinned most certainly against Uriah. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against, really, the entire kingdom of Israel who have placed their trust in him to lead, and he has failed to lead in a godly way. He sinned against a whole bunch of people. But David understands that first and foremost, this is sin against God. Your sin and my sin in this life will hurt other people. I know we all in this room tonight can think back to times where we've said things and done things, not only that hurt God, but that hurt others. And they do hurt. And we do sin against others. And we ought to apologize. And we ought to make amends and repent to them as well. But there is a biblical understanding that our sin is first and foremost against God. And even those others whom we hurt, who do they belong to? They belong to the Lord. They have, they have been created by Him the same way you and I have. And so when you hurt them, you're hurting Him. You're sinning against Him. And this is His world. It's not ours. And our sin has offended Him. Later on in, in verse 6, David says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is not the most popular passage of Scripture. I haven't seen it on coffee mugs yet. I don't expect that I ever will. Then in sin did my mother conceive me. No one wants to admit that their precious little infant is a sinner, but that is in fact what the Bible is teaching, is that we are born in sin. We are born sinners. That you, unfortunately, are not different than David. You are not able to ward off the sin that so easily entangles Human nature, we are all by nature children of wrath, the Bible tells us. We are by nature sinners. And so what do we need? That's all pretty doom and gloom bad stuff. What do we need? Well, just as, it, just as there is a three-step progression, if you will, of David's sin, there is this progression of what David understands needs to happen. He asks for his sin to be first blotted out, to have his transgressions wiped away. Wouldn't it be great if tonight you could just have your slate wiped clean, to have your memories maybe wiped clean of some things that you wish you could forget, but you can't. Those words you said, the things that you've done in your past that try as hard as you can, as many years maybe have been removed, they still keep you up at night. David is asking God to blot out his transgressions for it to be taken off his record. I don't know about you, but when I was in school, everybody talked about a permanent record, and I had this thought in my head that this permanent record in school was something that would follow me until I died. That when I was 45, 50, 55 years old, applying for a job, trying to get a house, that somebody was going to pull that permanent record out and find the time that I talked back to Mrs. Smith in fourth grade. And it was going to haunt me for the rest of my life, and it maybe was just a fear tactic they used to inspire obedience in school children, but it worked, so there's something to be said for that. But the reality is, while that permanent record might not exist, we do have a record before God, 
And like David's, it is not clean, not outside of Christ, not outside of forgiveness. It is not clean. There are things that I'm confident would keep you up at night, and I know that because there are things that, if it were not for Christ, would keep me up at night. We want our sin to be blotted out, and, and this is a desire that the world has as well. No one wants to go to hell. No one wants their worst deeds and worst mistakes to haunt them for the rest of their life. But here's where it starts to differ. When David says, not only blot out my sins, but wash me thoroughly and cleanse me from my sin. There's a desire not just to be forgiven. There's a desire here from David to be clean, to not be that man that he was before. If in God's mercy it's possible, he says he wants to be changed, to no longer be a murderer, to no longer be an adulterer, to get back to being the man that God has created him to be, the man that David knows he wants to be. This is the heart of repentance. It is not simply asking for forgiveness and saying I'm sorry and moving on with zero intention to change. It's not simply coming so that we feel better about ourselves, so that we can lift our hands in worship, so that we can go home and feel like we've done our religious duty. Repentance is a genuine desire for God to make us new men and new women and to change us from the inside out, to change us to where our sin no longer entangles us. We don't want to just be forgiven. We want our sin not just to not be on our record. We want our sin to be removed from our life. God, I want my sin to not just not stand against me when I stand before you in judgment. I want my sin gone today so that I can be who you have called me to be. That is what David is asking for here. He is asking to be washed. He is asking to be cleansed. The word metanoia, the Greek word for repentance, means a change of mind. A change of mind that will inevitably lead to a change in heart, a change in attitude, a change in action, a change in affection. So how do I know that my repentance is genuine? It's not marked by perfection. I wish it was. I wish that we could repent of all of our known sin, and that means that just like that, we're never going to sin again, and we are the perfect Christian from here on out. You and I both know that's not the case. We know from experience that that's not the case. When we repent on Monday, we can go ahead and just kind of put it on the calendar that sometime later in the week, we're going to be right back. Not because we want to be, but because we are sinners, and we do fail, and we do struggle. And it's not marked by tears. Crocodile tears are real. Sometimes your sin might drive you to genuine tears. Absolutely. There are times where my sin has convicted me in such a way that, that the, tears just don't, the tears don't stop coming. But there are times where they don't. And I'm still just as genuinely upset and sorry for my sin. And some people may, may not cry. It's not marked by tears. It's marked by a change of mind. It is marked by that word metanoia, a change of mind. It's marked by a new affection, by a new desire. It's marked by someone who has turned. We think about repentance as a turning. I'm, I'm facing you all. If I were to turn, I would be facing our choir or baptismal pool. I would be facing a different direction. You're going to go in a different direction. And David understands there's a need not just to be forgiven, but to go in a different direction. And that is what you and I need. 
David also understands that there are changes that are needed regarding his relationship with God and others, not just in being forgiven, but in the relationship itself. David wants to feel forgiven. Do you know the joy, brothers and sisters, not only of having your sin forgiven, but knowing that your sin is forgiven, of knowing that God loves you, of knowing that you were right with him? It makes me think sometimes of you hear from people in relationships and dating relationships and marriages. They'll say, hey, are we okay? Yeah, we're fine. Sometimes I might look over at my wife and say, honey, are we okay? And she might respond, yeah, we're fine. I know we're not fine if that's the answer that I get. I don't want to just know that my wife isn't mad with me. I want to know that we are good, that our relationship is one of joy and love and peace and that we are in a good place. And that's what David wants here in his relationship with God. He wants not only to have his sin wiped out, he wants to come over for dinner. He wants to spend time with his Savior. He wants to spend time with his Creator. He doesn't want to just walk out of a courtroom. He wants to walk into a home. And we know that feelings are not facts. There's an important note there that feeling forgiven, what David calls the joy of salvation when he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Notice what he does not say. He does not say, restore to me salvation. There's an important note tonight that just because you may not feel forgiven does not mean that you are not forgiven. And an important warning that just because you may feel forgiven doesn't mean that you are forgiven. Our feelings are not fact. Our feelings are just that. They are feelings. They are important, but they are not fact. We cannot lose our salvation. There have been many Christians throughout the years, throughout the centuries, who have tried to argue that you can lose your salvation. There have been theological debates, but I tell you tonight on the authority of the Word of God that if you know the Lord Jesus and you are in His hands, you cannot lose your salvation because you did not earn it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And if you were in Him, Jesus has promised to not lose anything that the Father has given to Him. And your feelings don't change that. The world does not change that. Satan himself does not change that. Our feelings do not change who we are in Christ. But, oh God, we want the feeling of joy. We want to know the joy of being forgiven. And David prays for that here. And we ought to pray for the joy, God, of knowing that we're forgiven. Not just being forgiven, but God to restore to us the joy of being forgiven. But this can only come when we truly repent, when we join David and say, Lord, we have failed. We have sinned and we recognize that it is great and that we have need for your mercy. David prays that God would not cast him away from his presence. One of the joys of the gospel is, is that we are not simply pardoned and sent away like someone acquitted at a trial, but we are, in fact, welcomed into God's home as a member of his family. Far from being cast away from his presence, we are given a key to the house. His family is our family. We are invited to his table. We dine with the Son of God. We dine with our brother Jesus. We have a new family and a new home. And this is a joy of the gospel. This is what David wants to experience, even if he doesn't, in his old covenant, Old Testament mind, understand it yet. This is what he wants. David also understands, finishing up the psalm, that he's now equipped to teach others. 
Make no mistake that if you've been forgiven of your sin, God's expectation for you is to go and tell others how they too can be forgiven. David says, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. David understands that he's received mercy and so he must now go and share mercy. Charles Spurgeon once said something to the effect of a Christian who does not go and share the gospel, a Christian who does not go and tell others to come and find salvation, have not experienced it themselves. That if your heart is not set on sharing with others the incredible mercy and love that you have found, you might not have received it. David understands this, that the call for him now, now that he is forgiven, now that he is restored to God, is to join God in the work to restore others to him. And what a blessing that is, church, when we are forgiven, God does not stick us on the sidelines. He brings us into his work. He brings us into his mission. His desire is not only for us to be forgiven, but to be restored. Not only restored, but put to work for the kingdom of God and to go share it with others. David understands here in, in verse 16 that God does not delight in sacrifice. And that is the message we share with the world around us that is caught up in all sorts of religions, all sorts of rituals, all sorts of things they might try to make themselves right with God. And the message we bring is the same message David gives here, that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart of God he will not despise, that we are a people who must throw ourselves on the mercy of God, that our message to a lost and dying world is to throw yourself on the mercy and love of God. The man that I told you about in the beginning lost the election. He didn't win. He apparently, in, in researching uh, today, I found that he ran again last year. He also did not win. Uh, turns out that parking in front of handicap ramps has its consequences. Your sin has consequences. And being forgiven does not always mean that we will not receive consequences. If you know the story of David, David lost the child he fathered with Bathsheba. David's family fell apart. His kingdom fell apart. His son Solomon was chosen to build the temple. There are very serious consequences in David's life for his sin. But yet, I would tell you that David, David would choose this because he knew that the one thing that mattered most was put right. His relationship with God was restored. He knew that he had received the mercy of God. He knew that even though there were consequences, even though sin had reared its ugly head in his life and sin had caused damage in this life, he knew that he had a right relationship with God that would last for eternity. He knew that the one thing that ultimately mattered was put right. But how? How was God able to forgive David? If God is a holy God, and we know, as I said earlier, this is sin that requires death. How was God able to forgive David? God does not simply forget his law. God fulfills his law. And God had said to the Israelites that somebody is going to have to die. David in verse 7 says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. We don't do a lot of purging with hyssop around here. But it harkens back to the Passover. Israelites would take a hyssop branch and they would dip it in the blood of the Passover lamb. The instructions for the Israelites were to spread it on their doorposts. 
We don't do the sign of the cross around here, but bear with me for a second. If you take a hyssop branch and you, you dip it in the blood of the Passover lamb and you spread it on your doorpost, it looks like this. Again, we don't do that here. We're not that kind of Christian, but you get the picture. What David needed was the Passover lamb. The way that God was able to forgive David and the way that God is able to forgive your sin and my sin tonight is because the Passover lamb has come. The way that God was able to forgive David is because God, like David, has lost a child because of sin. Not God's sin, but my sin and your sin. Because 2,000 years ago, God gave up his son to take the punishment for our sin. And instead of a lamb's blood being spilled on a doorframe of an Israelite home, the precious blood of our Savior was spilled on that cross because we needed forgiveness and God said, I'll do it. Yes, you need my mercy and I'm going to give it. No, there are no offerings that are going to make this right. There are no words that David could say to make this right. But God himself came down and he made it right himself. And he stood up on that cross and he took our sin. Look at him tonight. Maybe tonight is the first time you've understood the reality of sin. That it is not simply a small mistake like spilling your food in line or dropping, dropping a drink in the movie theater and getting somebody wet. This is not a small mistake. This is a grievous sin against the Lord. And tonight is the first time you've understood that this is serious. Look at Jesus who spilled his blood for you. Look at the one who would make you clean. Maybe you realize tonight that you've been taking Jesus for granted, that you've not been dealing with sin. That you realize that, that, these, that words like repentance and sin and forgiveness have come to mean really nothing to you. Look again to Jesus tonight, who has spilled his blood for you. Maybe you find yourself dealing with sin that just won't die. You are repenting. You're asking for forgiveness. And you're realizing, God, this is the fourth time this week that I've asked for forgiveness for this sin. God, there is this sin, fill in the blank, that just will not go away. You feel hopeless. And God says you have hope. God says you are welcome to join David here in this psalm and ask for that restoration and ask for that forgiveness. And because the blood of the Passover lamb has been spilled on your behalf, you can rest assured tonight that you have that forgiveness, that he will restore you, that he will restore to you the joy of your salvation, that you will be brought back into the presence of God. And one day, church, we will see him face to face. And we will, as David says, be whiter than snow. We are whiter than snow now, and we shall be whiter than snow when we see him. We will be covered in new garments, and we will praise him for eternity. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending him to die in our place. Lord, as we have heard tonight of the reality of our sin and the magnitude of our offenses against you, Lord, we confess that they are many. Lord, we sin and we sin and, and we don't even know sometimes how offensive our sin is to you, God, and we can't always understand that. But Lord, help us to see our sin. Convict us where we fall short. Help us to know where we fail you. Not so that we can beat ourselves up, but so that you can lead us to Calvary. 
so that you can lead us to our Savior who has made an end to our sin. Lord, and pray for those tonight who realize that they have unaddressed sin in their lives, that they would join David here and, and repent and ask for forgiveness and come for restoration. Lord, that you would help us all to keep our eyes on Christ, who is our Passover lamb, who does purchase with us, who does make us new day by day. Lord, and we look forward to the day where we will see you face to face, completely free from the sin which entangles. We thank you for that day, and we thank you for our love, your love for us. In Christ's name, amen.